Uh, praise the Lord. You know what? You know what, what that message helps me with is the fact that it's not up to me for my salvation. It's really saved by grace, Amen. and how it's through Christ alone that we can have this peace and this joy, and that Christ finished it all on the cross. So, thank you so much. Well, this evening we're going to continue in our study in the the seven churches of Revelation. So, if you would open your Bibles to Revelation chapter two. Chapter 2, we're going to look at the second church. We looked at the church of Ephesus, the letter to the church of Ephesus, um, the last, uh, a little while ago. <laughs> Took a few messages uh, talking about that uh, letter. But tonight we're going to look at the letter to Smyrna. Smyrna. So we had, I was just thinking, we had wonderful Easter services, didn't we? And uh, we had a lot of people there. I think uh, the count give or take, was around 240 people, <laughs> uh, which was amazing. The first service was full. Uh, the second service was three-quarters full. It was probably fuller than this or a little bit more full. More full. Um, but it was wonderful Easter services. And Easter really is uh, points to the resurrection, which is the cornerstone of our faith um, and, and the foundation of our faith. But just like this morning in Sunday school, I want to ask the question, is what does Easter mean to you? What does the resurrection mean to you personally? Now, we were going to send out many flyers. Uh, we gave out over 1,500 flyers for that. The paper was supposed to have 15,000 flyers. Um, kind of um, interesting there. But the printer never fulfilled the second order. And so those flyers never went out. Um, it's very interesting to get that call on that Thursday or Friday, and they didn't go out. But um, uh, we worked through all that, and we got a refund for both and all that. But God's leaving some money there for, for another outreach, I guess. But, but anyways, when you think about Easter, Easter is not just evangelistic, obviously, right? Easter is a time for us to reflect back, and we ought to have Easter or the resurrection in our heart all the time. And truly, as we look at this church here, you're going to see some... Some reasons why the resurrection is so important for us to meditate on and to think about. Because the, the resurrection ought to impact our life in more than one way. In many ways. And so let me read and then we'll pray. Uh, starting in verse 8. And I've entitled this tonight, Faith Under Trial. And uh, really, as you notice as I'm reading, it's only four verses. That's, this is the shortest letter that's given. Notice also as I read, there is nothing for them to uh, repent of. There's some commands for them to grow and to help them. There, he's commending them, but there's nothing. There's only one other church, the Church of Philadelphia, uh, that is similar to this. But that's 12 verses long, and there's a lot of praise. It's almost like someone has said that this is like a commander's final instructions to his company of special forces. It shortens to the point, and there's some very uh, clear things. Three times you'll, you'll see the, the word death used, or dead, in here, talking about Christ, but also those that would suffer persecution. And we have to ask ourselves, is Easter only one time of the year, or is this something that we should be having in our heart all the time? The truths of the resurrection ought to impact our life daily. And we're going to see that in this letter as... Uh, as Jesus writes here uh, to them. So let's start reading in verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead 
and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation, in poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray this evening that this letter that was written many years ago to this church in Smyrna, Lord, would help us this evening as it's been written, it's been preserved for us, that we, Lord, would take these truths, although many of us not suffering persecution anyways. Lord, our faith does come under fire. It does come under trial at times. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to lay hold of eternal life, to lay hold of our our Lord who was raised from the dead, who overcame death. And so, Lord, just for the next few moments, help our minds to be focused on these truths, we pray. Apply it to our lives now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Faith under fire. Truly, a lot of us cannot relate with what this church is going through. It's talking about a persecution, a trial that would come, a time where they would go to jail, a time ultimately it would be for 10 days. But I have to tell you something right off the bat. Imprisonment during this time did not mean that you'd be in prison for many years. Imprisonment meant really that was the beginning of the end. It was the idea that you would be put to death and ultimately for your faith. Let me give you a little bit of background information about this city. This city is not listed. There's no churches that we know about other than here. Uh, the book of Acts does not talk about Paul going to Smyrna. Smyrna was about, I read different opinions about this, about 25 to 35 miles north of Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was the, the church there we talked about and, and read about before. Smyrna was called, um, it was a lovely city. Many Men called it the ornament of the Asia, of Asia Minor, the crown of Asia, the flower of Asia. It was an important seaport city. In fact, the way it was situated, you could go in on the ships there, and if it was maybe during war or something, they, they actually could put a chain across the port and it would keep out the ships. I've uh, never been there, but that's what I understand. Uh, it was uh, a place for a lot of commer- a commercial center for a lot of trade. Uh, there was uh, a valley there. There was a lot of different things that were grown, and it was taken out. A road led there. And so there was just a lot of commerce. It was a beautiful city, though. Uh, it was uh, one of the few cities that was planned, like the actual um, planning of the city. They had streets that were perpendicular. <laughs> And uh, it was lined out very nice. I don't know how many of you have been to Salt Lake City, but that's what I think of, something that's been laid out really nice in that way. And that was not common. Uh, the roads were large. The roads were, were good. It was well-traveled. It was also a city that had a lot of temples, a lot of temples to various so-called gods, the god of Zeus. They had a temple. In fact, from one temple, the god of Zeus, to another temple, they had what they called the gold, Golden Road. Um, they also had, this is the town where Homer was from. They had a temple to Homer. Um, they also, um, and real interesting, in, in AD 26, uh, kind of uh, 
fighting for, not fighting, but kind of kind of like the Olympics, you know, in the Olympics, how they try to say, I'm the, we're a good city, you need to bring the Olympics to our town. Um, they were planning on building a temple to one of the um, Caesars at the time, Tiberius, and uh, they um, had them look at their city, and they were able to do a temple to Tiberius. And so it's very interesting, because at the time, the Roman Empire had was just amazing. Um, there was no one else to conquer. Uh, it was its own thing. And through time, the emperor actually became almost like a god-man. And they would worship the emperor. In fact, in this city, it was held that they had to go and they had to worship. And so they'd have to go. And it was really a simple act. They would take incense, a little bit of incense, and they would just throw it in the fire. And that was your act of worship to the emperor. You'd get a little certificate, and uh, you were okay. All right? But for a Christian, could you... Could you do that little act of worship to the so-called God? Uh, Many of the Christians, uh, well, the Christians could not. Uh, They could not because there's only one true God. There's only one Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And so there was this spirit of Rome, this this idea that Rome was to be feared and worshipped in the emperors. And so it was it was a very interesting, interesting city, beautiful city, a lot of commerce, a lot of temples, a lot of different things. And as we See, in this passage, it was also a city where the Christians were persecuted. Notice it's a very short letter. There's only four verses again. Uh, The first verse talking about the angel or the messenger uh, that that writes here. uh, These things saith here. This is about the Lord Jesus, the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I'm going to get back to that part there. But in all of these, whenever there's an attribute of the first part of Jesus talking here, it brings up something that's very helpful for the church. But in verse 9, Jesus says, uh, John writes, and Jesus saying here, I know thy works in tribulation in poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and they are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. You see right away this... This shows that God knows. We could stop right there where it says, I know, and we know that God knows everything about this church and all the things that they are going through. You see, this whole city of Smyrna, we we actually, maybe you've never heard of it, but uh, I was listening to another message, and this word for Smyrna also can be translated with the idea, the root word for myrrh. Now, we've heard myrrh before. That's a type of uh, oil. In fact, they use it today. It's an essential oil, but it's a type of spice that they used. It's used three times in the Bible. Let me read it to you. Matthew 2, 11. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and smyrna. <laughs> it's the same Greek word. <laughs> John... John, uh, John nineteen thirty nine, and there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of Smyrna and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. In Mark fifteen twenty three, and they gave him to drink wine mingled with Smyrna, but he received it not. See, one of the things that they would often trade and that grew there was some type of tree that they would take and then they would pound it crush it and they would make this type of spice that would be used really in lots of times in uh, the idea of embalming somebody or even there Jesus when he's on the cross they mixed it together to help him endure the pain he did not take it though 
And so we have right away this idea of this myrrh. Smyrna really already has the idea of that affliction, that idea of, of bitterness even. It's um, back there in the book of Ruth, it's used of, do you remember uh, Ruth where she says, call me now, or Naomi says, call me now, Mara? That's the, the Hebrew, there's a, a root word there for myrrh or Smyrna. And so this city was a beautiful a pleasant place, but yet at the same time for the Christians, even with the idea of what was coming there, it was really a city that was full of persecution for the Christians. And, and really, if we're honest, we don't get a lot of persecution in our, in our country. We really don't. We go to some of these other countries. When I hear of even in Papua New Guinea, how there's, there's people that go through the, the town. They talked about how there was one man that was drunk and he had a, he had a machete and he was going through after the Christians and one man got hit on the leg. I don't know if he was demon-possessed or what, but he was drunk and he was going after Christians. Um, and we also, down in Peru, we talked uh, with our missionary recently. They're trying to get the, uh, the Christian school going there. And the man wanted a bribe in order to give them uh, the completed paperwork. Some of those little things that we don't face. Obviously, in some of the places, they just uh, went into Syria to one of the towns. And they found this mass grave with 40 people there. Um, many of them women and children, and a few of them had been beheaded. More than likely, those were Christians, folks. We don't experience that type of persecution here in the U.S., but we do experience some. But I would just back up and say all of us experience suffering in our life. In this town, in this city, in this letter really represents the, the suffering, the things that we go through. In verse 9 God is saying, I know, I know your works, I know your tribulation. That word for tribulation is the word for affliction. It's the idea of a crushing beneath a weight. It's the idea of there's pressures that are coming and the pressures. You see, in this town, um, if you did not sacrifice the incense to the emperor, you could be taken, you could be put in prison, you could die for your faith. It was an uncertainty. It was such a, such to us, kind of a little thing. I mean, just a little incense and you get this certificate and it's not a big deal but to those christians they knew that they could not bow down to the emperor they could not do that they could not offer those things and and i think truly as we understand that god is king of kings and he is lord of lords we cannot bow down to any other idol but to to others it seemed like such a little thing all you have to do is just throw the incense to throw it in but not only that, if they didn't do that, they had like guilds, or we would call them unions here in town. And if you were part of a union, then you could get work, let's say like a plumber or a carpenter. In the same way, they had different jobs. You had to be part of that guild. In order to be a part of that guild, you had to be a law-abiding citizen. The Christians were not considered law-abiding citizens because they would not uh, give worship to the emperor, to the so-called Roman god. So it affected them financially. Not only that, many of the Christians of the New Testament, we know they were of the lower economic status. We see that time and time again, how it talks about the poor and the rich and often the poor who are not poor, but rich in Christ, as it, it says here. And so um, and not only that, with this persecution, there was times where uh, they came in and they just flaw, they came in and to their homes and they would they would just destroy things. It's pretty hard to keep things and have things well in your home when people come in and they would just destroy it. Now, folks, this is happening today in different countries where other people of other uh, religions come in and they literally just put houses on fire and, and all 
kinds of persecution. That's what they were going through. There was this tribulation, this great pressure of affliction. There was this this poverty. John reminds them of their, and the Lord here, that they're rich. But also, there's this blasphemy of them which say they're Jews. For a long time, the Jews and Christianity was considered an offset of the Jewish faith. But there came a a time that this now was no longer offset of the Jewish faith, but now was a separate thing. And now we see even the persecution of the Jews. This isn't new either. We saw this in Thessalonica. Thessalonica and other places as Paul went there, the persecution that was really started by the Jewish people. It's interesting, but sometimes people, even the name of religion, will be an enemy to the cause of Christ. Let me read something. A lot of, maybe a lot of outside um, information tonight, but I think it's going to be helpful. John John Wesley once said, Your God is my devil. It's a terrible thing when religion becomes the means of evil things. Listen to these six slanders that were often used against the Christians. Notice how it takes a little truth and it just just turns it. And I want you to see something. There's a spiritual battle raging on. in, In that these slanders that were taking place there, people can slander us for our faith. Notice this, though. This is one of the slanders that was leveled against the Christians and, uh, in this area during this time and uh, by, the, um, by what was going on. On the basis of communion, this is my body, this is my blood, the story went about that the Christians were cannibals. Because the Christians called their common meal the agape or the love feast, it was said that their gatherings were orgies of lust. Because Christians did, in fact, often split families. And when some members became Christians and some did not, the Christians were accused of tampering with family relationships. Another one, the heathen accused the Christians of atheism. That sounds crazy to us, doesn't it? But here's the reason why. Because they could not understand a worship which had no images of God such as they themselves had. The fifth one, the Christians were accused of being politically disloyal because they would not say Caesar is Lord. And lastly, the Christians were accused of being, it's a different word, but basically has the idea of arsons because they foretold the end of the world in flames. You can see how these things twisted and they were slandering these believers. And it was so much so that, as we see here, there was a trial of their faith. I'll give you one other martyr who's a, a famous martyr in this town was Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He was martyred on Saturday, the 23rd of February, AD 55. It was the time of the public games. The city was crowded. They were known for their public games, kind of like the Olympics. This was the area. And the crowds were excited. Suddenly... The shout went up, away with the atheists. Were they atheists? Just believe there's one true God. They didn't have images. They believed in the true God, the Christ that had arose. Let Polycarp be searched for. He was the bishop of Syria, Smyrna. No doubt Polycarp could have escaped, but already he had a dream. Um, he had a dream. God had given him a dream that, that he would, 
which he saw the pillow under his head burning with a fire, and he had awakened to tell his disciples, I must be burnt alive. This is interesting in the early church. His whereabouts was betrayed by a slave who collapsed under torture. They came to arrest him. He ordered that they should be given a meal and provided them with all they wished. Some Christian love. Well, he asked for himself the privilege of one last hour in prayer. Not even the police captain wished to see Polycarp die. On the brief journey to the city, he pleaded with the old man, what harm is it to say Caesar is Lord and to offer sacrifice and be saved? But Polycarp was adamant that for him only, Jesus Christ was Lord. When he entered the arena, there came a voice from heaven saying, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. The proconsul gave him the, the choice of cursing the name of Christ and making sacrifice to Caesar or death. Eighty and six years have I served him, said Polycarp, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul threatened him with burning, and Polycarp replied, You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked and the judgment to come and everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. So the crowds came flocking with with faggots or sticks from the workshops and from the baths and the Jews. Even although they were breaking the Sabbath law by carrying such burdens, were foremost in bringing wood for the fire. They were going to bind him to the stake. Leave me as I am, he said. For he who gives me power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved, even without the security you will give me by the nails. So they left him loosely bound in the flames, and Polycarp prayed a great prayer, which I have here I won't read tonight. Boy, what an example. 86 years old. All he had to do, all he had to do is just say, Caesar is Lord, and he had to just put a little bit of incense and make that sacrifice. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Folks, I think we're tempted all the time to give in, aren't we? When we're, when we're put under the trial, the suffering, whatever the trial might be in our lives, there's a temptation there to give in, isn't there? There's a temptation to be like the world. There's a temptation to give in to ourself, temptation to just give in to the world, the world system, the system that doesn't think about God and just fit in. Be one of many. All they had to do is be one God of many. They would have been fine. He said, no, I can't. My Lord is I've served my Lord for 86 years. He's never failed me. What faith he had. That's dying grace, isn't it? But folks, what trial is it that you go through? I think all of us at one time, I think we will be persecuted for our faith. And it definitely seems like it's coming. And no doubt, um, as you read about the end times and things, it will come. Churches all over the world are suffering in this way. But I want to come back to this. What does Easter mean to you? I know we just had Easter, but I mean... Is Easter just a neat celebration where we have a wonderful choir and a wonderful time to get together and try to reach people with the gospel? It ought to mean so much more of it. And we see that coming out here. Verse verse 8, again, the things that are said, they're said by Jesus here, and it describes Jesus. He is called the first and the last. 
who was dead and is alive. We know this is coming really from the vision in chapter one where Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega. You see, even with this city, it's interesting. This city was built in uh, 1000 B.C. And then uh, there was somebody that came in and ruined it. And for four centuries, it laid ruin. And then they built it back up with the straight streets and things like that. You, you, you could think of how there was the city. It began and it ended. But surely in reference to here, Jesus is the first and the last. Think about that. He's the first. He's the originator. He's the creator. He's always been. He's before anything else. He's the last. He's the one. He's the author and finisher of our faith. But he's also the, the firstborn. But he's he's the last. He will always be there. He's the one that overcame sin. He is the conqueror. He is the victorious Lord who conquered sin and death and ultimately Satan. You see, there's some commands here that uh, that we could get to tonight. But does Jesus mean more than you than something special on Easter? He ought to. You see, he is the one that overcame death. He's the first and he's the last. No matter what comes our way, he is the one that we will uh, that that we will stand before one day. What does Jesus mean to you? Um, is Jesus everything in your life? Did, did you get it? That's really what's stated here. He's the first and the last. He's the one that's overcame death. You say, well, Pastor Nathan, is he, is he everything I need? Well, what about I need to eat? I need to drink. I need fellowship, things like that. Well, the fact is, is that we need that nourishment even more than our physical nourishment. How is it? This, um, some, of the, some of the pressures that you have in your life. What do you do when the pressures come? Say when that myrrh is ground up, when you feel like you're under the grinder, when you're under that trial, what, who do you go to? What do you go to? That's, that's the message here. John is saying, hey, and he's writing this letter, he's saying, Jesus is the first and the last. He's the one that's overcame death. He ought to be your all in all. He ought to be your everything. And truly, as this church is facing all those other things, the, the food, the finances, the homes, the entertainment, all those other things, they don't, really, they don't really mean that much when you're facing death. But the fact is, is that all of us have, need to have that perspective that one day we will die, we will stand before our Lord. And that truly here, even as he says in verse 9, the right perspective is, even though we may not have much, we're rich in the Lord. And so we have in verse 10, we have two commands. He says here, really, the devil, the devil shall come, uh, shall cast some of you into prison. Notice here, the enemy is not people. It is ultimately Satan himself. People are simply pawns in Satan's hand. Uh, Satan is the one that used the world system that that uses this anti-God and this thinking without God and these people. But ultimately, Satan is the one that is the enemy. He's the adversary. We have two commands. It says, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. Okay. And you shall have tribulation 10 days. This word tribulation, again, that same idea in verse nine of affliction, suffering, persecution, 10 days here. Was it real 10 days? It sure could have been. But the idea is it's not a long time. 
And really, in light of the persecution or the suffering or the afflictions that we go through are not a long time compared to eternity, compared to the glory that we will be able to be a part of with our Lord forever. There's two commands. Verse 10, it says, fear not or fear none of these things with thou sh- uh, which thou shalt suffer. And the last one is be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. You see, if anything, this passage, as you think about the resurrection message, it ought to help us to fear not. Literally, you could translate this. Stop fearing those who are going to persecute you. You see, when we when we realize that our experience is based on the experience of Christ, the historical fact that Jesus gave his life He died in our place. He rose again. He is our representative. We are with him. We are in joint union with Christ. That whatever affliction or whatever trial we're going through is but for a moment. Because one day Christ will return. And because he conquered death, we will be able to conquer death. Uh, In Sunday school, 1 Thessalonians 4 says um, that uh, the trumpet of God... um, the dead in Christ shall rise, and then we which shall remain shall be raised up and caught together with him in the air. The reality is, is that this is but for a moment, although it's a tough, it's a horrible thing. Whatever the suffering, whatever the persecution, it is for a, a moment. We ought to fear not, and we ought to be not, or we ought to be faithful unto death. You see, the resurrection ought to help us to be faithful. The captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus, endured all those things. You see, as you get closer to your Lord and understand he is Lord, it helps you to be faithful. Faithful with whatever thing you're going through in your life, whatever it is that's pressuring you. There's a lot of pressure with our building project. Okay, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of things that are getting done. And and Mike, Mike rebuked me the other night when I said, I wish we were just done with this building project. Um, But that came out of the idea of that pressure. It's nice to have the pressure off, isn't it? Some of you know this. You know this with your family. You know this with your grandkids. You know this just with life. Uh, I'm feeling this with um, some things I'm going in my own life. I just feel this pressure. But you know what? When we look to Christ, it helps us to be faithful. It helps us to endure. If anything, this church could be said as a church that persevered, a church that went through all these things. He says, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. This crown of life that he talks about here is also mentioned in a first, uh, first, first Peter, where he talks about the. Or I'm sorry, James one twelve. Blessed is that man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. This crown, they were used to crowns in the games. They were just leaves put together that would only last for a time. It was more of you got something, you rewarded publicly, there was fame. But this crown that he offers is the crown of life. Was it, is it truly a crown that we will get when we persevere and we overcome? Maybe so. I, I guarantee you we'll throw it at the feet of our Lord, whoever came. That's, that's the one. But it could mean that it is the idea that we have eternal life. That's the crown. It talks about a crown of glory. This crown that we have, the idea is that we were faithful unto death like Polycarp. And we endured and we have eternal life. Romans says the the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared 
with the glory that shall be revealed in you. I would say it's it's hard in many ways to apply, to give application tonight, because I don't think we're going through the persecution. I just don't think we are. I think we could. But I think the pressures of our life, we have to ask ourselves, are we putting, are we giving it all to the Lord? Are we going to him first? Next week, I want to focus in on verse 11, so I'm not going to go in there tonight. But let's bow our heads and close our eyes a second. First Peter says, as you had your, your heads bowed and eyes closed, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Philippians 1.29 says this, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. You see, a gift is, really, it's a gift here. It's a gift to suffer for his sake. It's funny how wimpy we are as Christians. We think we're having hard times, but when we really think about what the Christians at Smyrna were going through, we have nothing compared to them. But this man, Polycarp, was faithful unto death. Ultimately, our Lord was faithful unto death. I don't know what you're facing this week. I don't know what pressure it is in your life where it feels like you're just in the grinder. But I know the one that can help you. I know the one that can help you to fear not. And I know the one that can help you to be faithful unto the end. And his name is Jesus. And today in your seat there, even now, you can ask him. You can look unto him, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He's at the right hand of the Father. I don't know what it is, but I hope that you can renew that faithfulness to him today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful this evening. Lord, you know I struggled to get a lot of application tonight, but Lord, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus who endured everything for us. Even as he was in the garden there sweating great drops of blood, knowing that he was about to die on that cross and he was about to take our sin and our punishment and the very wrath of the Father. And he said, may this cup be taken from me. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would have broken spirits as we think about Christ and the cross and how he was victorious over death. We think about you, Lord Jesus, and all that you endured. No doubt this week we're going to be tempted, um, little things, tempted to allegiance away from Christ. I pray, Lord, that we'd have even a greater faithfulness to you. And Lord, when we're afraid of certain things that come, I pray, Lord, you'd help us to trust you and look to you. Or do work in our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.